Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. We're back. I th- I hope we're back. I think we're back. I guess if you're listening to this, it means we're back. Yan took the week off last week and didn't tell anybody about it, but I think we're back now. And as we've done the last couple of years, we want to kick off a new year with a legendary producer. And this time it is Chris Kimsey. Last year, I think it was Trevor Horn. The, weir- the w- year before that was Stephen Haig. But anyway, our producer episodes are always the most popular and always super, uh, everybody loves these ones. So I want to do it again. Now, Chris is probably best known for his work with the Stones. He did Some Girls. He did Steel Wheels, Tattoo You, Undercover. He did Emotional Rescue. Now, we didn't talk as much about that album. That's why I wanted to play this slab of disco rock goodness to give it some love uh, because it doesn't come up as much compared to the others. But there's a lot of stone stories in here. Um, the Undercover, the night one alone is worth the time, the investment. Uh, there's also Led Zeppelin three. There's Frampton Comes Alive. He's on all of that. But then there's also a lot of fun alternative stuff too. There's Killing Joke. There's uh, Psychedelic Furs. There's In Excess. There's Duran Duran. There's Wild Wild West by the Escape Club. He produced that. Now, you may have noticed, we did this interview at the very beginning of October. And at the time, Jordy Walker of Killing Joke and Mars Williams of The Furs hadn't died. And both of those names come up in this conversation. It's kind of surreal to think that within weeks of us talking about them, they were both gone. It's just tragic. But anyway, there's also conversations in here about a lot of bands you may or may not even know. Because Chris did a lot of things things he's also proud about that he doesn't get to talk to as often. So anyway, I just, I mean, we all do. We love to hear these, just go down the resumes of great producers and hear the stories. And here's another one. So I think you're going to love it. He called me from his home in Putney, England. Uh, But where are you, by the way? I'm in Putney. I'm just around the corner from Olympic Studios, which is in Ah. Bath. I'm like 10 minutes away from there. Now, isn't Olympic, that's kind of where you got your start, right? Yeah, 1967, I started there. Okay. Um, and I didn't realize it, but the uh, the studio had only been open barely a year when I when I started working there. And I, I started working there as a, a T-boy, essentially. And the very first day that I started there i was told to go into studio one um make myself known to the engineer and sit down and observe don't say anything just watch what's going on so i went in and the engineer looked at me quite a little panicked and he said he said um i I said hi i'm chris kimsey i'm just working here he said great he said can you take over my assistant just gone sick so i looked and i could see it was an eight track machine and it was a simple, it was a little jingle session. It was like a five-piece band and a singer. So I just sat down at the tape machine and figured out what was going on because I'd, I'd, I'd had a tape recorder since I was about 10 years old. So I was familiar with a tape recorder. Not an eight uh-huh. track, but a tape right. recorder. And I sat down, just made notes what was happening, you know, um, different takes. And if one was good, one was bad. So the session only lasted an hour. And um, at the end of it, the engineer said, he said, thank you so much. He said, what was your name again? I said, it's Chris Kimsey. He said, great. He said, how long have you worked here? I said, well, about an hour and a half now. <laughs> and he was quite oh, wow. amazed. And, and we're still good friends to this day. His name was Alan O'Duffy. 
Um, and Alan went on to record, he did Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, oh. He did the Rocky Horror Show. Um, oh, a lot of amazing records. Um, so wow, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting day. That was I interesting. Bet. And the rest, you know, is history. That's crazy. Okay, yeah. let me. Uh, whenever I talk to a legendary producer like you, who's done so much stuff that matters to me, instead of starting with some of the obvious things, I like to start with the things that matter to me personally that you may not That's get asked great. about. I love that. That's great. So, okay. So I want to talk to you about Killing Joke, but I want to talk to you about Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, which is probably yep. my favorite Killing Joke album. Right. Okay. Nice. Yes. I really like the song Chessboards. Probably because it was featured in this 80s movie called North Shore that I watch still to this day, but it was obsessively when I was a kid in the 80s. Um, it's a surfing movie. Anyway, I know that uh, Love Like Blood was on Nighttime. I'll ask you about that next. I know that that was sort of them finding a new sound that was a little more palatable maybe than some of the hard, harder core stuff that was coming slightly before that. Yeah. What was your experience making Brighter Than a Thousand Suns? Because my understanding is that most people, critics included, feel like it's a little too soft. It's not very good. And yet, to me, it's the best. I love it. Right. Well, I mean, well, we recorded that in, I think we went to Holland. We went to Whistlelord Studios to record that. We didn't do that in Berlin where we did Nighttime. Um, and um, the, the band, I'm just trying to think, if Raven was still, yeah, Raven was still alive, yeah. Um, and I became, after nighttime, I became really, well, I was good friends with all of them, but particularly with jazz. Uh -huh. We really got on really, really well. And, in fact, it wasn't long after Brighter Than a Thousand Suns when um, I helped him get his classical career mm. off the ground. Really? Um, because I was working with... Um, I was working with Derek Green, who owned um, what was the label we had? Um, Derek was A and M, but then he started his own label, um, and he had um, Anne Dudley on, on the label as well. Ooh, Anne. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I knew of Jazz's aspirations to become more classically involved because he he actually grew up as a um, a child virtuoso violinist. Yeah. He was trained classically, so. I was always fascinated by that that kind of two-pronged thing with Killing Joke. You've got the crazy, heavy, you know, mm -hmm. rock thing going on, but you it's all coming from a classical background, really, with jazz. Agreed. Um, 
And the beauty of jazz and Geordie together, just a joy to see and hear them work out songs together with Geordie's chord, Geordie's sound, which was unique as well. Yeah. Um, which went on to be emulated by the cult. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> who, who actually did work with, I worked with them uh, on a few songs as well. So that was interesting. Um, yes. But, um, but the Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, um, I... I don't know. That's the first time I've heard anyone say it was it was regarded as a softer album. I I I, I, I think more synth. Maybe they were. You know, people are. Right. Yeah, and that's I, not I what think, up to that point you would have thought about killing. I don't personally no, hear that so much, but I that's what they. I say. think what it was. I think if my memory serves me right, it's a couple of things. Is that jazz had moved into a very melodic period yeah. in his writing because that's yeah. where it's all coming from. So, um, and. And in doing that, the songs had more of a tune to sing. Exactly. Um, I mean, it, I'm thinking of like the last couple of albums that they put out where there is no tune, really. It's just jazz yep. like growling uh-huh. at you, which is great too. I love all that. Sure, of course. This, this was a totally different thing. Um, and I, it's definitely a much more rom- romantic album. Yes, that's yeah. Um, and I think after... Um, I think after nighttime as well, there was just a transition in their music. They were experimenting with, you know, bigger melodies with, mm-hmm. um, yeah. with a softer approach. And there was also, I can't remember what, but there was a new keyboard that came out as well. Oh, so okay. That that would have, have inspired and led jazz to that makes sense as well. Wasn't yeah. there some? Uh... I don't know if controversy is the right word, but there was some, like you did stuff and then Julian Mendelssohn came in and did stuff. I oh, love him too, by the way. He's been yeah, on here. No, no, such Julian's a good man. Great. So, no, it was one of those things where, you know, it happens a lot um, um, where, you know, producer, engineer, you make the album and then some of the record company goes, oh, I think we should get so-and-so to remix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's fine. That's not, you know, if they want to do that, that's fine. Um, yeah. And, um, um, Julian mixed it. Um, I didn't have any problem with that. But funny enough, years and years later, they decided to release my mixes. Yeah. Uh, when you go um, to Spotify, it says the Chris Kimsey mix. Yeah, I still have the uh, CD from back in the day, but yeah. And and I, I was, I, I said, well, that's interesting. So I started checking reviews and stuff and people were really enjoying my mixes. And mm-hmm. it was like, well, that's really interesting. But, but I learned at, um, at a very early stage, not to get hung up about yeah. other people mixing, you know, work that I records that I've recorded because I, um, when I was working with the Stones on some girls, um, Earl McGrath, who was the head of Rolling Stones Records at that time, he had a new, new young friend of his that he was kind of helping get into the business, um, get in mixing in particular. And so he suggested to Mick and Keith that this young guy from the power station called Bob Clear Mountain oh. should mix, mix a couple of tracks. So uh, at that time, I was really pissed off. You know, uh-huh. it my first complete Stones album. And I thought, yeah. why, the fuck, why is someone else mixing what I've you know, been yes. working on for over a year? And my mixes are great mixes and nothing yes. wrong with it. But it, it was all political. So anyway, so... Um, the great thing was that so that album came out and um, Miss You was on on that uh-huh. album. 
And uh-huh. about three or four months later, I was working in LA and Miss You came on the radio and, uh, you know, in a hire car, nice car, more likely, you know, convertible Mustang or something. So driving uh-huh. down PCH and I'm cranking it up and it sounded fantastic. I mean, I was going, wow, this sounds great. Yeah. Never really heard it on FM radio in the States before. So it was blowing my mind. And, and I was thinking, wow, Bobby's really good. This is a fucking great mix. And the difference between his mix and my mix was that my mix was the full version. He mixed the edited single version. Oh. So on the full version, you had the sax solo, Mel Collins sax solo yeah. at the end. So I'm driving along, and the sax solo comes on. <laughs> and I went, holy shit, this is my mix. So it taught me something that, when you're making a record, as long as it's in the, as long as you've got the groove, the recording in the groove when you make the record, yes. then it can only really, it can't, it can get marginally better in mixing, um, uh, you know. It, yeah. Uh, unless you're going to mix it so differently. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, but I used to love doing, I mean, there's a lot, so we killing joke. And I think it might be killing joke that pushed me to do it originally actually i really got into do it in extended mixes yeah i noticed so, that uh, and there was quite a few on on early stones records that i'd forgotten all about but suddenly pop up there and there but i used to uh, really enjoy doing it and it very different to what it was i mean today it's really easy with pro tools edit sure. edit edit and, but back then it was all tape so yeah. it, it was really a, a different art form in a way but much interesting kind of really um a little bit more experimental and you you know mistakes would happen but those mistakes became something of leisure sure, sure. And something quite special so yeah. let me ask you uh, more about the stones then since we're there i i a few of the songs and you probably get asked about a lot of the big ones but i'm like for instance when i listen to the song undercover yeah it feels more like a produce a a, a, a producer's song than a band song It feels like a concoction yeah. come up with in a studio with all those reverbs and, and the remixing it, it, and the dance beats and stuff like that. It it was. It was completely that because that was the weirdest song um, um, in terms of <laughs> that was one. But if you played the multi-track, you go, well, this is an undercover. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. It, I mean, it was the mix was totally created um, when I was mixing it. Um, yeah. And I. Um, I, you know, knowing all the components of it, um, I just had like a, I really had a vision on 
how it should sound. And it, it shouldn't sound like anything else. No. You know, it really sound wacky and crazy and, and very experimental and not even like the Stones, to be honest. No, it didn't. Um, it still doesn't. It was, I think it was my influence of living in and working in Manhattan um, that, you oh. know, that pushed me to that as well. Yes. So, um, it was also at a time when Mick and Keith were not getting on. Yeah. Um, and in a really bad, it was a bad time in one way for me because Mick would come in from like two o'clock until seven o'clock mm-hmm. to do his overdubs and his work. And then Keith would come in from like midnight till 5 a.m. to yeah. do his work. Uh, and, you know, Keith would say, well, what's he been doing? Let me hear it. That's oh, rubbish. Get rid of that. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> um, and, and I just, I just, when it got to mix, I said, look, you guys, just leave me alone. Let me, let yeah. me do it. And then you come and listen to it if you like it. So I think Undercover took me about three days to mix. Um, huh. um, and there was a great assistant engineer called Brian McGee um, at the Hip Factory who um, I, I, record all these pieces um stop start stop start go back looping and i say to brian right edit that to that edit that to that and edit that to that and, and uh-huh. poor brian i remember in editing he cut his finger one day with a razor blade and there was literally blood <laughs> on the track so oh no right yeah, brian did a wonderful job the two of us on that so and then when i finished it and i played it back to mick and keith um i can't remember i've i I think they, they were in the room together for that. Moment. Okay. And Keith turned around and said, that's great. Can you mix the rest of the album like that? Oh. <laughs> it was like, it's like, well, no, not really. <laughs> that's the only song. <laughs> yes. But that song started with um, uh, acoustic guitar and timpani. Charlie playing timpani. That's how it started. I mean, it was the most surreal song. It didn't go down like any of the other songs I've ever recorded with them. So it was a real journey, that song. And I kind of wanted to uh, magnify and enhance that journey in the mix. Yeah. Of it. So it was I, real, yeah. I still love that song. In fact, I feel like it's one yeah. of the, I feel like it's been, I don't know, overshadowed or almost forgotten about because of so many other True. big things in their career. Yeah. But yeah. it's so unique. I was listening back to Undercover to get ready to talk to you again. And yeah. there's, like you said, there's nothing else like it in their entire catalog. It almost sounds like like a dance remix or there's, you know, like yeah, yeah. it almost feels like Latin percussion in yeah. there somewhere. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. guitar, exactly. wow, 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 yeah. wow, you know, that guitar yeah. thing. Yeah. And I'm thinking no, there's the, no way the Stones yeah. came up with any of this. This has no, to no, have been Chris. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing was, it was so, you know, now you've got a whole, you know, a multitude of plugins to do stuff. Sure. I mean, you know, too many. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But then it was like you had a harmonizer, um, you had tape, uh, echo plate, uh, very basic things, but you really had to use your imagination to create a new sound. Yeah. So the, the bam, bam, bam guitar thing was me. Um, pressing start on the tape machine and stopping it at the right place so the echo would carry on. Wow. And then we, we record that backwards and flip it over. And, wow. and so you got the wow, wow, wow. You got that yes. from that. So that was oh. you know, so much fun doing that shit. And the, oh, man. On, the vocals, on the vocals where it goes, um, 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 there's a harmonizer effect where it goes, uh-huh. it kind of tumbles tumbles down that the harmonic from his voice 
makes the reverb regenerate and yeah. tumble down. And that was all hand triggered as well. It was like, you know, it was, yeah. yeah. It's such it really a piece was of work. Like a, a DJ set. <laughs> yes, yes. It was yeah. so different. So let me ask you then about Tattoo You because um, I, I, I marvel at Tattoo you, Tattoo you sometimes because of how successful it was compared yeah. to what I believe the stories are of them having very little to do with it. Uh, yeah. I, it, it, it was mostly just like songs that were on other things at that Completely, point. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, I think, um, um, I'm trying to, um, so Prince Rupert Lowenstein, who was their manager at the time, Rupert said to me, he said, Chris, do you know if there's any songs, because I've done some girls emotional rescue and undercover by that time. Um, and he said, do you know if there's any songs that didn't get used on, you know, all the recordings you made? I said, wow, yeah, shitload. And yeah. I used to keep um, detailed logs of everything. Ooh, I, I mean, because this it was all on analog. We, you know, you had like about 500 reels of tape. Um, and when you went from Paris to, to New York, you had to ship all those tapes over oh as well. So you had to have a, a, a very detailed log. Um, and... Um, log with illustrations as well. Sure. Um, so um, um, I said, yeah, sure. I know a few. So, um, and I think it was another thing where Mick and Keith weren't getting on that much, but they needed to get an album out. So um, I said to Rupert, I said, well, I said, why don't you let me go in into all the back catalog, all the vaults? And um, because if I know there's four or five, there must be some on other records as well. So I got all of Goat's Head Soup out. I got all of uh, black and blue out. Um, I got what else? Um, some stuff that Glenn had recorded on the mobile that had never been used, which was um, dance, I think it was. Um, um, and, and so after about, I don't know, a couple of months of going through it all, I suddenly had this pretty much a whole album's worth of material, which was really strong. I yeah. mean, really strong. Start me um, up. I mean, that's such an obvious radio yeah. single. You know, oh, I know. I know. And waiting well, on a friend is Slaves, well, one of my favorite Stone songs ever. Yeah. Okay, so it was Slave. Lynn did, did Slave. That was done in in um, Rotterdam, I think, on the Stones uh, Mobile, uh -huh. in, in an auditorium. Um, um, so that was that. And then Waiting on a Friend, that was done, Goat's Head Soup. That was from uh, Jamaica days. Um, I had no and idea. Then, um, 
the majority of the other stuff was from you know the three albums that I'd worked on before. So yeah. I started putting it all together, and most of it was finished except for some songs. Mick didn't have all the vocals complete, so you know he'd sing the same verse round and round, and, and right. so I had to get Mick to to fix up vocals, and then Charlie came up with the idea of having Sonny Rollins play sax on a track, which was great. Um, but there were no um, there were no guitar overdubs done. Everything was there. Really? Nick, yeah, Nicky, all the keyboards, Nicky Hopkins was on there, and Chuck Lavelle was on there. Um, so it was just vocals and the hand claps on stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so that, and then when we put the album together, um, it was like, um, I can't remember how it happened. It might have been one of those happy accidents, but it ended up being all the fast songs on one side and the slow songs on the uh, other, yeah. which was quite unique as well. That was yeah, quite a special thing. I can see thing. that. I can see yeah. that. So, so that, the Sonny Rollins, like was that an overdub that came later? Yeah, that was you? an overdub in New York, yeah. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the perfect accent for that song. It's a good song yeah. without it. It's a uh, great song with it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Well, that was all Charlie's idea as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, oh, yeah, that, man. That was, and it was, it was a remarkable album because it did. And Bob Clearmountain mixed most of it. I think okay. I got a couple of mixes, but it was great because it, it, it sounds, it doesn't sound like it's from, you know, five different albums. No, no, it, it sounds no. Like the same period. Yeah. It's yeah. Oh my gosh. What a, so, that's a, that's an amazing, I don't think that gets talked about enough. Um, yeah, now let yeah. me talk. So let's ask, uh, let me ask you about steel wheels then. Steve Lillywhite was on here last year and we talked a little bit about dirty work. And uh, yeah. so it's interesting to me that they work with you for so long and then they do an album with Lillywhite that yeah. I like that album, but it didn't go do as well or something. And then yeah. Steel Wheels is back with you seen as like the big comeback. Yeah. Was everybody, I'm guessing the reason that one's different than some of the others you'd worked on in the eighties, especially was because was everyone more bought in? Like we're, we've patched things up. We're not going to fight as much. We're going to be here. We're committed to making new songs. Yeah. Was that sort of the vibe of that album? Yeah. Well, that, that album really started when, um, um, I, I got a call, you know, to ask me if I'd like to work on the next album. Uh -huh. Um, and I said, Yes, sure, but I'm going down to Montserrat. I'm working with Anderson, Wait for Proof, and Hal oh, down there yeah. for like a month, five weeks. Uh -huh. So I said I wouldn't be able to start until such and such a day. And the other thing was was that I said um, I, I'd like to speak to Mick and Keith and Charlie. And I said I, I really don't want to spend a year making an album. Yeah, you know, I think we should approach this in a different way because what what always used to happen was band would come to the studio and the songs were pretty much conceived and written and recorded in the studio, okay. um, which was great. I mean, that's a great way to work. Um, Mick had got a really sweet deal with Pathé Marconi, EMI Studios in Paris, very cheap, so they could afford to stay there for like, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks yeah. doing that. Um, so that was sweet. And then, um, so that was agreed that uh, Mick and Keith would go off and actually sit down and, and start writing together. Okay. Um, and then bring it into the studio. So they went down to Barbados. Ah. Uh, so I was just in Montserrat. So they were in Barbados. So I used to go over to see them at the weekends to see how they uh -huh. were getting on. Uh -huh. um, they were in um, um, Eddie Grant's studio. Yeah. Yes. 
so they were there and um, um, it was really quite funny actually because I remember Mick was more concerned about putting aluminium foil up in his bedroom window because the blind wasn't working and the air conditioning wasn't working so so he could stay cool. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, after um, going back with you know, a couple of trips, a couple of weekends going over, I suddenly thought they need some new blood here. They're getting on well, but they need another musician. Well, in working with Anderson Wakeford Booth and Hell, there was a young keyboard player programmer called Matt Clifford mm. who was working um, with, with those guys. And Matt and I getting on really, really well. So I said to Matt, I said, Look, you've nearly done all your stuff now. I said, do you want to go over on the weekend and hang out with Mick and Keith? <laughs> and he said, what? You mean the Mick and Keith? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, they're writing a new album. I said, and I think it'd be good if, if someone else was over there. You play keyboards. You could. And so he said, well, yeah, fantastic. So uh-huh. um, went over there and I, I called him up after a couple of days. And I said, how's it going? He said, well, he said, it's been really fascinating. I said, well, how's the music going? He said, oh, no, the music. There's no music. He said, we've just been hanging out socially, and we've met, you know, Lady So-and-So and, you know, mixed on social circles. So yeah. Matt, Matt just kind of absorbed all that and I loved bet. it and, and became really good friends with Mick. I mean, they're, they're best friends to this day. They have really, really enjoyed That's great. That. Wild. Yeah, so that, that was really quite a special putting together with that Matt. is great and so, so let me ask you when lily white was on here he mentioned um and i've heard this sort of thing summarized by other people that there are definitely two camps there's mix camp or mix team and there's keith's team yeah. and the more you want to be on keith's team that that's more fun because mick is all business <laughs> right. Yeah. And very buttoned up and very, yeah. you know, but Keith is loose and yeah. people are going to drink and smoke a fag or whatever. And they're going to, yeah. you know, relax and have a good time. But yeah. uh, that was he's, Steve's he's quintessential vibe. musician. He's the quintessential, you know, he's the yeah. musician. He's yeah. the rock and roll. He's, he's the, the heartbeat of it. And, yeah. you know, Mick is too. But as you say, Mick's in a totally different world. Yeah. A very, Mick's great at the PR and a great uh-huh. singer. And a great performer, yeah. Um, but the actual musicality is really coming from Keith, yeah. You know, um, in in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. And the art of working with him is to kind of bounce between the two camps. I bet. Um, or, or try and stay in the middle, um, and um, which was which was fun. I really enjoyed working with him. I mean, when we did Steel Wheels, so. We were talking about undercover, and I had uh-huh. that vision for a sound with that. And and with most records, well, yeah, pretty much all records, I, I do, I think, I, I kind of have a plan of how I want this record to sound before I've made it. I look at the, the group's past history and maybe where they're going and think about the sound a lot. So um, in doing Steel Wheels, I, I already had it in my mind that I wanted to make a record that was really quite, glossy and um, quite cinematic not like anything they've done really in the past actually this would be a new kind of almost like a hi-fi record yeah Um, and um and you can only do that when you've got the songs as well to do it right the songs did push it that way yeah i mean mixed emotions i love that song i love that song too i'm so glad you said that chris
the harmonies on the yeah, chorus. Exactly. Bernard's yeah. I'm getting goosebumps just that. thinking about it. It Me is too. the I best. Yeah, it really is. It's a and melodically, it's a great everything about it. It was and, and that was like and so the whole album kind of shaped itself from there for me and, and sonically and slipping away another, yes. you know, beautiful um and, and all the songs from the album um were were that they had this kind of, you know, I projected this sheen onto yes. them with the overdubs. Okay. Um, so I, there were a lot of overdubs on that. Record. I believe it. Okay. I just, I wasn't planning on asking you. I just came to mind that Continental Drift is on that yeah, album. Yeah, that's right. Which is yeah. another piece of total yeah. oddity in yeah, the Rolling yeah, Stones canon. that song come from it makes no sense anywhere else okay okay so that was mick and matt so really yeah so here we have matt who who keyboard player but comes from you know the knowledge of programming Uh uh-huh early sequencing and programming so um when (laughs) when matt when we were doing the sessions for steel wheels in montserrat um matt would set up his keyboard with a little you know um monitor uh-huh. Um, um, because it, it was, you know, early programming and early um, looping and stuff and sampling. So, and Keith would come in and say, what the fuck is that piece of shit? Get it out of the control room. So, you know, it didn't, but Keith would get a crown and he'd draw across the screen as if the screen had been cracked. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, was like, he was very anti-machines. Uh-huh. Um, and so, um, so that song really came up of Mick and Matt's, um, you know, friendship and working together. Wow. And, uh, Keith, Keith overdubbed, he played a bicycle on that. He, a bicycle? <laughs> yeah. How do you play a bicycle? Yeah. Yeah. The only thing he, he could think of doing or wanted to do was the assistant. This is when we were back in London. The assistant came to work on the bicycle and he, you know, used to put it just outside the control room. And Keith said, Can I, I want to use your bicycle. So I bought the bicycle in, turned it upside down, put it on its seat. And uh-huh. Keith scanned the wheels and got a drumstick and was like, you know, hitting the, the spokes really? <laughs> as he was going around. Yeah. He pretty much fucked up the bike, actually. <laughs> he had to buy the kid a new bike. But, oh, no. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, that was Keith's. Uh, uh, that's one thing he put on there. I can't remember what else he put on. But okay. Not, but that, and then also, that was the song, I think, where we went to Morocco to get the Jujuka. That makes sense. Um, on as well. And that, wow. that that was an interesting journey. I got sick the first day from food poisoning, um, but um, 
Um, and then you went to wait. There's there's a money in the budget for however x amount of people to fly to Morocco to get yeah. the sound of one instrument on a song. No, it, it, it's more than one. It's a tribe. It's a group oh, of, okay, okay. And, and it's the group that Brian Jones had recorded like oh. thirty or forty years before. Okay, so, okay. Uh, you know, Bedouin who came down from the mountains to meet and. Um, uh, but even then, so even that was um, that was early days of digital recording. All we had was a, um, a I think a stereo digital recorder. We didn't take multi track there. Uh, okay. We simplified it. Um, yeah. That was fun. So yeah, that was quite a trip. But that that was a fun trip because it was great to see Mick and Keith back. They were loving it. They were back in. I believe Europe, it. I believe uh, it. Marrakesh, where I think it was Marrakesh. Um, no, was it Marrakesh or was it? Um, it Casablanca, I can't remember now, but um, but they really enjoyed that trip, that exercise. Was That's great. great. Wow, yeah. all these are great stories. Um, so then, okay, oh, go so, ahead. Uh, so then, after finishing Steel Wheels, you know, I thought, right, great, that's exactly what I was aiming for. The next record, I want to do it like Exile, I want to make it really dirty, uh -huh. minimal. I didn't get to do the next record because <laughs> they changed labels. They went to Virgin. Yeah. Mick met Don, um, and Don, um, yeah, did a great job with them. But it was Mick's decision to move on and go somewhere else. So I never got oh. a chance to do my, my Dirty Stones album. <laughs> Dude, ooh, yeah. that would have been fun. Do you stay in touch with those guys at all, or I mean, um, how do you have a I, relationship with a Stone? I do. I do with Keith. On and off. I mean, Keith, um, very graciously, um, my wife just released her album that we, we actually made in 1979. What? Um, Do I, your wife is out. a musician? She, yeah, she's a singer-songwriter. Yeah, yeah. I did not know and this. She, she did a duet with Keith um, um, when we were in uh, Compass Point down in Nassau. Yeah. Um, because Keith had heard us sing on other stuff. Um, and of course, Christy traveled everywhere with me. So, yeah, she, she was there when I did some girls as well. And oh, um, I had no idea. What's her yeah. name? Tell me. Tell It's, it's we'll Christy, Kim, Christy Kimsey. Christy Kimsey. And the album is called As I Look Back. And so when we were in, in Compass Point, um, Keith um, called her up one evening and said, I want you to come and sing a duet with me. 
Um, oh. I've got this song, and it was a it was a song, a Sam Cooke song called "Let's Go Steady." Yeah, um, but he didn't write it; it was written by someone else. But Sam, sure. Sam Cooke made it a big hit. Um, and so Keith got Christy to come into the studio and, and do this duet with her, and it was like one take. I didn't even know it was going to happen. He suddenly. Oh. Christy told me I got home one night. She said, oh, I'm coming back to the studio. Do I want to do a jet with Keith? I said, oh, you are? Oh, fantastic. Oh. So, so um, yeah, and it never got released on anything. It, it did get kind of bootlegged on YouTube, as most of sure. the stuff does. But when we um, when we put Christy's album together, um, I thought it'd be great if if they let us use that on the album. Yeah. Um, so I wrote to Keith, and, and Keith said, um, and funny, actually, I wrote to Jane Rose, who's Keith's manager, and I said, you know, we'd like to put this um, this song that Christy sang on with Keith on. She said, yeah, sure, that's fine, that's fine. You know, Keith's playing a bit of guitar on it. I said, well, he's playing guitar, but he's also singing. It's a duet. Ah. And she went, no, no, you can't, but it's a duet. Not. So, And then a few <laughs> weeks later, it came back, and Keith had decided that we could use oh, it. Oh, nice. So, oh, good. Definitely. That's good to know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. So it did happen. Okay. Uh, great. So let me ask you, you know what? I'm piecing together right now how something might have happened. Uh, Wild Wild West by The Escape Club. Huge hit in America. probably and that's the biggest one but now that i think about it i'm connecting a, some dots possibly between the production work on undercover and the production work on wild wild west right. i can kind of see now how the same guy might have done both of those things right right is that part tell me about the your job going into making that song in particular but that whole album uh well that whole album came out of um, a situation where when I first met the band and worked with them, um, the head of the label, um, um, who was the head of the label? It was EMI. Um, when I started to work with them, it was one group of people running the label. And ah. six months later, they'd all left and yeah. it was a new group. The new group didn't want the escape club. They wanted the addition. But I knew, I knew that we'd recorded a hit song with Wild Wild yeah. West. Yeah. Um, and there was some other great songs in the pipeline. So um, my manager at the time, Rick Alberti, he managed to get a deal that we could stay on, finish the album, 
Um, and then he introduced them to Hit and Run, which was Genesis management. Mm. Um, and Genesis got a deal for it with Atlantic in the States. Um, and so it was, um, um, but yeah, but back to your question or your thought process. Um, I don't think, I think at that time, musically, oh, I know what, I've just remembered. Um, I was very, very, um, I love Stop Aiken and Waterman. I used, uh, to, I used yeah. to love the pop records that they made. I thought they uh -huh. were brilliant. Um, really good. And um, I kind of thought this is my chance. The music that I was hearing from the Escape Club could be pushed that way. And I Ooh. pushed it even more and, yeah. you know, kind of wanted to wanted that sound. Um, and um, it was also a time when, again, there were certain instruments coming at keyboards, you know, drum machine, 808, a lot of stuff just added to that, you know, new uh -huh. exciting pop sound for me. So, but also with guitars in it as well. Yes, yes. It it's, such a, it's such a mix of dance beats, heavier yeah. guitar. There's a yeah. grittiness there that I always kind of associate with anyone coming from Australia. Bands like In Excess, which I'm going to ask you about here in a second. Yeah. They just have yeah. this kind of element of grit in their pop yeah. music, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, but you're, you're right. I mean, I think, yeah, that was more likely born from the undercover time. I think yeah. that was... Okay. I can see the link there for sure. Well, yeah, and absolutely. yeah, there's that same kind of like Spanish, I don't even know what it is, some, yeah. some percussion that's that's more exotic, a little more, I don't yeah. know. Well, I think of it, or Yeah, you know, yeah, and those yeah. horns, I don't even know if they're real yeah. horns. They might be sitting Yeah, they are real horns, yeah. Are they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that again just sounds like something. You talking about undercover, you wouldn't believe what it actually sounded like in the beginning. Yeah. I could kind of see that wild wild west in the band's yeah. hands as a demo might have sounded very differently than what the yeah. produced version was that came out you know yeah yeah, yeah. so let's i let me ask you about in excess because you did the full moon dirty hearts album right yeah yeah that is one of my favorite in excess albums and i oh. feel like it is completely over yeah. no one knows about it that's true no yeah. I love that up and and I know I've had Andrew Ferris on here and I know from talking to him and hearing enough about it that the band was pretty proud of it you know Michael yeah. singing with Ray Charles was like a life you know a career defining thing for him how oh. tell me about working on that album well I I didn't work a lot on that album I did the track oh. with Chris I did the Chris oh you track. did the, the title track yeah. Full Moon yeah yeah
I did that and a couple of others. I can't remember the others, but I I was I was in I was in Paris. I think I was working with the Stones, or I might have been working with a band called Fingerprints. Um, oh. but I was in Paris and they were in Paris at the same time. They wanted to meet. So we met, um, got on really well with all of them. Um um, especially with Michael, well, with all of them actually. Um, and and then um, they said, We're gonna send you the songs for you to listen to. Well, they sent me the songs. Now, these were pretty much finished. This oh. was pretty much most of the album finished. But okay. when I heard it, I didn't like the mixes, and I didn't I didn't know it was for you. I said, I said, Well, I think these demos could be better. <laughs> they went, oh fuck. They're, well, they're not actually demos, that's the most of the album. So they said, well, what would you do different? So anyway, I said something, and and then we went and did some stuff together. Um, and um, the, the one with Chrissy Hyam was one of my favourites. But that actually started a friendship with Michael, which went on because um, a few years later, I was asked by RCA to do a Rolling Stones symphonic album, mm. which was the, the first of its type. So after I did that one, they had... Zeppelin Symphonic, they had Who Symphonic, Yes Symphonic, all these symphonic albums came out. The jazz orchestrated some of those, but um, so I, I, I was the first producer to do one of these, and I said to the record company, I said, oh, "Well, this is great. I really want to do this, but I have to pick the songs, and there can be no guitars on it, no drums. It's got to be orchestral, really symphonic." So uh-huh. um, we agreed on that, and then. Um, I had to choose the songs and the singers. So um, I got Marianne Faithful. She'd always wanted to sing um, Ruby Tuesday. Ooh, yeah. So she sang Ruby Tuesday. Um, I got Marie uh, Brennan from Clanad mm-hmm. to sing as Tears Go By. Oh, beautiful. Um, I got Mick to sing Angie, um, which was an event. Um, <laughs> and... Then there was a couple of instrumentalists, the Egyptian violinist that Jazz Coleman introduced me to. Oh. And I, I got Jazz to do the arrangements. I got John Astley, um, yeah. who's a, a dear friend, because um, I knew I knew Jazz could do arrangements. John was hoping, you know, I knew he could do them, but he'd never been asked to do them. So mm. it was a springboard for him. Um, and Matt Clifford as well to do some. Um, and then... I wanted Michael Hutchins to do Under My Thumb. Under my thumb, the squirming dog has just had her day. Under my thumb, a girl who has just changed her ways. It's down to me. The way she does just what she is told is down to me. Change has come, she's under my thumb Under my thumb A Siamese cat of a girl Under my thumb She's the sweetest pet in the world It's got to be She does just what she's told It's down to me The change has come She's under my thumb
because yes. I thought he'd be perfect. So, and he was perfect. He was amazing. So yes. I actually flew out to Melbourne to, to get him to do that performance. And it, it was wow. just incredible. And he oh. was such a gentleman. He was really, really a wonderful guy. I, I bet. That's all. That's what I hear. So easy to work with and all heart and soul. Yeah. And, uh, and he, yeah, I mean, every time I listen to that performance, it just like, yeah, I'm so Ooh, I gotta find that. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> was it good. your idea to bring Chrissy Hind in on Full Moon, or was no, that no, or someone else's no, idea? No, that was someone else's idea. Okay. No, that was someone else's idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Speaking of underappreciated albums by huge artists, you worked on the Liberty album by Duran Duran, correct? Yes, yeah, which had um a wonderful track called Antarctica on it. Yeah. And also, um, oh, one of my favorite. Um, Serious. Serious, exactly. Again, that's, I just think that is a perfect pop single. It should have been a gigantic hit, but no, no one was it, paying attention to, to Duran Duran at the time. Well, also, the record company picked all the wrong songs for yes, singles. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, they yes. just picked the wrong shit, yeah. No, that was, um, it, there aren't many artists or bands that, you know, people say, who who would you like to work with? Um, and... Um, Back then, I would have said Duran Duran because I grew up, I loved Duran Duran. Um, and um, it was a real treat to work with them. Although, <laughs> you know, musically, it wasn't their best album. Um, but so I it like still, it though. I mean, I think it, it's, it still, I'm not saying it doesn't it's, matter. I mean, I can't even judge it by that because, you know, there are some amazing songs at Venice yeah. Traveling as well. I, you know, yeah. I'm remembering the song title. So um, that's a good sign. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Serious was. Um, Amazing. And there was a yes. funny instance when um, a few years ago, because um, I've been working back at Olympic Studios now, which is which is now three cinemas, a members club, a restaurant. We're building a new studio on the roof. But I, become, I became good friends with the new owners about 12 years ago. And they asked me if I would, they know nothing about the music business. They're in film um, and graphic design. And they asked me, um, if I would continue the great sound of Olympic in design and the cinema sound. So I studied that and got into that and did that. And very successful. The cinemas are very successful. Wow. It's led, it's led on for them to open up three more um, studios at the Battersea Power Station, two huge ones at Battersea's Power Station, three in Selfridges, Selfridges in central London. So a great bit of teamwork there but so one day i'm in screen one at olympic which was studio one and 
I'm showing someone around, talking about the cinema sound. And, you know, in cinemas, they're always playing music when the films, mm-hmm. you know, when there's no films on. And Sirius comes on. And all of a sudden, I just stop talking and I'm listening. And I'm going like, wow, that sounds fucking amazing. That's Duran Duran. Wow, that's my record. It was like, you know, it was just a mind part at the time. And, yes. and I, I thought that is such a good record. It really was. It really is. Yeah, it yeah, really so, is. It deserved yeah, more. No, I no, wish, yeah. you know, they're back on tour. I wish they would work it into the set list or something somehow because it deserves a yeah. second life, you know? Yeah, it does. That's so true. good. Yeah. Okay. We have some Patreon supporters, and I let them know who I'm talking to in advance, and uh, they can submit questions if they want. Yeah. Okay. We got to get into Marillion here because yeah, yeah. Um, one of my yeah. listeners <laughs> goes by the name Sugar Mouse. Oh, right. okay. I've never, I will confess, I don't know that much about Marillion. I no. know a couple of songs. I've never paid that much. Attention. They weren't ever that huge over here. No, they weren't. No. So I never knew where that name Sugar Mouse ever came from, but he submits right. a lot of questions. I assume it's a he submits a lot of questions. And I was thinking, well, that's such a funny name. Okay. First of all, first, please thank him, Chris, for producing such masterpieces that have profoundly changed my life for the better. Wow, Second. I'd like to, now I'm going to read this and, uh, there's a lot here. So we'll, we'll try and piece some of it together. Yeah. I'd like to ask about misplaced childhood being such a magnificent concept album. Was it always going to be a, be a start to finish concept or was it originally a batch of separate songs? Okay. Should we, answer them on a, should we do what? it one at a time? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So misplaced childhood was always going to be a concept album, which I, so Part of my musical background um, and recording was I loved um, I loved movie soundtracks. I I I loved musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always enamoured with this whole idea of anything I could do within the rock music or pop music where there was continuity, where there was story from A to B, yeah, you know, where there was a concept. So when I met Marillion. Um, They'd been on the road for about six months performing some of the songs from Misplaced. And, and then when I met them at rehearsals, we sat down and they said, we really want this to be a concept album, but we don't want to tell the record company because the record company will shut it down. Mm-hmm. So I said, right. Well, as soon as the concept, I said, I'm in. Yes. So and it really was like, it was like blackboards, you know, writing out how we get from this song to that song to that song, technically as well. It was, uh, for me, it was one of the most exciting records to make because it really was so, you know, it was 16 track, might have been 24 track. And just even to technically arrange where you put stuff on tracks, you know, you put the drums on the same tracks and the bass, but then keyboards, you've got keyboards changing from back about three or four different electronic keyboards, a grand piano, an organ, guitars, the same thing. Um, You have to make a really concise map of how you're going to record it and keep it going. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was really thrilled when they said a concept album. So it, it wasn't a bunch of songs. It, it was a detailed concept album with really thought out and planned. You know, not everything was thought out and planned, yes. but the majority of it was indeed thought out okay. and planned. So that's, that's great. Thank you. 
Uh, okay, so some of these you just answered. Who figured out how to put the songs together? Sounds like you did. Who figured out all those seamless transitions between songs? You. The way Kaylee flows into Lavender and into Bittersweet. Yeah. Uh, the way the entire second half of the album flows seamlessly together, especially Perimeter Walk into Childhood's End, which yeah. always gives me the chills. Yeah. So, yeah. He said, I've wondered if they considered ending the album with Childhood's End which has always sounded to me like a better album closer than White Feather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that, actually. White Feather was like, I could never get my head around why White Feather was there, to be honest. Um, and Charles <laughs> almost felt like you know, a better closer. Uh-huh. Um, but um, um, I, I, actually, I think at that time, it might have been a bit short on time. I think without White Feather, I don't think, because in that back then, um, Musicians, bands, producers had to deliver um, an album that was a certain length. Yes, you couldn't just hand in, you know, like four tracks that were like eight minutes long. You, you had to give a certain length. So I, I, I'm not sure if there's 100, but it wouldn't surprise me if we got to the end um, of childhood journey and then we went shit. We need another song. <laughs> so White Feather came up. Yeah, possibly. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, and then also he says, and for Clutching at Straws, as you can imagine, Sugar Mice is one of yeah. his favorite songs of all time. Yeah, he yeah. just wondered what you remember about the recording of that song in particular. Um, if I anything. Can't, I can't remember exactly. I mean, I remember where we did it. We did it at West Side Studios in London. And it was, it was quite a stressful album to make because the band had been so successful with Misplaced Childhood and the record company and management had just put them on the road forever. Yeah. Um, and that was filtering into their private lives, you know, marriages, you know, on the edge, relationships were on the edge. So that was a pretty tough um, record to make. But in saying, oh, oh, actually, I do remember one thing. So in knowing that what was happening with the band, I, I instigated that um, we would only work five days a week we would always have the weekends off. And at the beginning, the band would go, no, no, we just want to work through, work through. I said, no, you don't want to do that because you're going to get burnt out. You know, you're pretty much burnt out now. So, yeah, you know, you yeah. really will fall down the, the rabbit hole if you if you don't take some time out. So towards the end of the first week, they would go, what are we doing the weekend? Oh, we've got the weekend off. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was a good thing that happened on that album. Um, but he says, was, uh, oh, go ahead. 
no, no, carry on. Well, I was going to say that guitar solo in Sugar Mice in the bridge and the way it feeds into the heartbreaking end of the song is just so perfect. Um, do you remember anything about the recording the guitar solo? No, but I mean, Steve, the guitar player, is an incredible guitar player. It's yeah. beautiful. And, and um, they, you know, they definitely, the musicality from them all, from, you know, from Mark, the keyboard player, all of them, me and the drummer, they're, they're such a finely tuned unit um, of knowing how they could get from one section to another. Yeah. Uh, very theatrical. I mean, yeah. and the theatrical thing came from Fish, the singer, you know, okay. the, the, yeah. the, the lyricist. He, he was, a, I mean, they were, sadly, they were kind of like touted as a poor man's genesis in yeah. the state of it, which, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, okay, they were a concept band, so I could see that affiliation, but but not in any other way. I mean, they were inspired by it. I mean, Fish was definitely inspired by it. Um, by Genesis um, sure. and um, Peter. So, um, but in other terms, they were really on their own out there. Yeah, you could tell. Was it? Yeah. Uh, I listened to those albums to get ready to talk to you, not having really known them that well before. But was it yeah. Clutching at Straws that where Fish? A lot of the songs are about kind of like the end of rock, him wanting to be a rock star or it's empty or it's just not working yeah. out or, yeah. you know, it feels like a kind of an exorcism of fame and, and the musical hamster wheel that a successful band has to be on. No, it was absolutely. Yeah. And the, you know, the association with, with alcohol as well. And drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I can see that. It's all coming out on that album for sure. Yep. Um, um, yeah. Okay. One other one, and this is another one you probably get asked about a lot. Kevin Peters wants to know about Led Zeppelin three. Um, yeah. That's also up there yeah. with maybe one of my favorite Zepp albums. I love it. And he just wanted to know what did the rest of the band or you think when Jimmy Page shows up with all these acoustic songs that sound so different? Um, well, I wasn't really privy to that 
part of the recording. I, okay. I, I was assistant engineer on the album, so okay. I would just get to see and hear them when they were actually in the studio laying it down. And my memory, that's a long time ago. And sure. I'm sure Jimmy would have sat down with them and played the acoustic version. Yeah. Them. I, I, that doesn't stick in my memory. But okay. One thing that does stick in my memory, which I'll never forget, is that um, um, since I've been loving you, soon as i pressed record to you know for that track i thought shit what's that noise i could hear this noise and it was it was bonzo's bass drum pedal squeaking it it hadn't been oiled so it was like oh no and and nobody else heard it and at the end i i said and it was andy johns on that i said i said andy did you hear the the bass drum pedal squeaking he said no and as soon as I said it, he went, "Oh shit, yeah." So anyway, they, that's still on the record today. If you listen, really, to it, no one, you and, didn't go back and oil no, it, no, no, redo no, it. No. If you listen to it, you'll hear there's a squeaky bass drum. Pedal. I don't know what happened to the drum tag after that. But, <laughs> um, wow. Okay, yeah. I will go back and listen to that. That is yeah. great. You, I mean, do you have much of a memory of seeing them work together in a in the studio like that? Yeah, I mean, Jimmy um, was just terrific. In fact, we had, um, and John Paul Jones as well, uh-huh. I mean, and they were they were very, they were so professional in the studio as well. They were really on it. They, they were like hyper-session musicians. Yeah. You know, they were so in tune, and they really knew what they were doing musically. They were very, very smart, okay. and, and in the production as well. And, and um, there was, when Jimmy, when, when he re-released all the Zeppelin catalog about seven years ago, I think, uh-huh. um, um, the Warner Brothers and Rhino were looking for a venue where they could showcase the remastered and also there was additional tracks that came out, uh-huh. places where they could showcase it. Um, and they went to quite a few venues and they came to Olympic and I met them. It was quite funny because they said, and these were quite young people working at the uh-huh. record company, they uh-huh. said, they said to me, they said, well, we're not sure if Jimmy will come out this far. Cause it's like about 20 minutes outside of central London. And I said, what do you mean? I said, don't you know that the first three Led Zeppelin albums were recorded in this very room you're standing in? And they went, really? They didn't, they didn't even know that. So, 
So when Jimmy heard that we had a bespoke PA in the cinema, yeah, he, we did we did all of the all of the playbacks for like two years for all of the re-releases, and it was great to see Jimmy come down. He was oh, just that's great, and he did Q and As afterwards. So oh. it was like a, a whole afternoon in Zeppelin with the playback in the cinema at eleven. <laughs> yeah, um, and um, the record company had put together like a slideshow, really nice slideshow for each album. You know, oh, images and stuff, and that then great. You know, they would have press and some fans. They'd give them lunch, and sure. then they had a Q and A with Jimmy and his manager afterwards. So really, really, that sounds special. heavenly right there. Yeah, um, okay, let me ask you about another one, and this one was on my list too. Matthew Quinlan uh, wants to know about the recording of Diesel Park West's Shakespeare, oh. Alabama. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Yes. So let me, he actually, he's been one of our listeners for a long time and he actually turned me on to that album right, a few years yeah. ago. And it's one of my favorite albums. Too. Oh, I, I think it's a album. masterpiece. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so he wanted to know like what Jackie you have, did you go with? What's All that? the myths on Sunday. All the myths yes. on Sunday. Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. He yeah. wondered if you went in with high hopes about this particular project and oh, what it absolutely. must be like to not have it work out, you know, when a band doesn't get as big as you think they might. Well, I've done quite a few of those. <laughs> um, I bet. Um, there was an artist called Jerry Williams, um, who was on Warner Brothers, who uh, we did an album called Gone.
Um, this was in the 80s, early 80s. Jerry's no longer with us, but, but Jerry went on. Um, he wrote Giving It Up For Your Love by Delbert McClinton, Delbert yeah. McClinton number yeah. one. Um, no Alibi that Eric Clapton did. He wrote a bunch of songs for Eric. Huh. Um, and we did a solo album. Well, that's a whole other story. But it was, it's, you should check it out. It, okay. Jerry Williams, the album's called Gone. Um, I'll look it up. I think, I think you can still find it. And okay. he's, he's a white Texan who sounds like Stevie Wonder. What? I mean, really? He, he's, yeah, he's an amazing singer-songwriter. Um, but going back to Diesel Park West, so, yeah, I mean, it was um, um, uh, it was really such a beautifully set-up situation because they were signed to um, Food Records, uh-huh. which um, was a new label going through EMI, who had also signed Blur. So it was Blur and Diesel Park West on the same label. Um, and the album before um, Diesel, um, uh, Shakespeare, Alabama, had like, I can't remember, I think it was maybe Jackie still said, it had one song on it, which was a semi-hit. And when I met the band, I fell in love with them. Yeah. Um, I fell in love with the guitar player and John the singer. And it turns out that John the singer, this is a funny story. So when we first met, he was quite shy. And I said, John, I said, is, is there something you want to tell me? He said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you produced a band called Widowmaker um, uh, for Jet Records in the 70s um, with Luther Grosner on guitar. Um, who was the bass player? Uh, Bob Daisley on bass. Um, and, um, and he said, and I was a 16-year-old singer at the time. Oh. Um, and, and Jet Records was owned by Don Arden, who yes, Don Arden yeah, and Sharon Osbourne's so, dad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, you know they kind of disappeared. The band disappeared, but he was a singer on, on in that band. I went shit, John. So it was wonderful to reunite. Yes. With him. we're still friends to this day. Actually, I, I, ooh, I've been wanting to get him on here. I yeah, I got to look him up. I would love that. He's doing, and he's still making records. He's still oh good. Them. Okay. Yeah, so um, so we and we made that album. Actually, it was the first album to be made when Olympic reopened in the late eighties. So um, when I started it, it was owned by a gentleman called Cliff Adams, and um, it was managed and built by Keith Grant, and and so who gave me my job, my career. Uh-huh. Um, and then many years later, it was sold to Virgin. Virgin bought it. Um, they completely gutted it. They really screwed up Studio One because they um, they they got a Japanese acoustician to come in and, and remodel it all. But he ripped out the heart and soul of it. They they did good things. They put a, a good roof on the building um, uh-huh. and they put another studio in the basement. But the number one room they changed it from a it was a big big room, uh, but it felt like a um, a lounge, a really comfortable room mm. to be in. Um, but they turned it into like a gymnasium. It was wood oh. everywhere. It was oh. really quite oppressive. But they built another studio in the basement, and that's where I worked, and I did Diesel Park West down there. So I was the first producer to come in there, and we yeah. made that album down there. It's the same studio where we did Duran Duran as well. Actually. Oh, interesting. Um, wow. So, um, so yeah, and I just love making that album. Oh. And I, it was a period when I'd stopped engineering um, um, because I'd met Chris Potter, engineer Chris Potter, who I met at Maison Rouge and Chris and I developed this friendship. Um, so Chris 
did um, he did the Escape Club with me. He engineered that. Um, I got him to engineer Steel Wheels. I got him to engineer Duran Duran. I got him to engineer um, um, Shakespeare, Alabama as well. Um, so um, I would generally mix the stuff. Chris would mix some of it or we mix it together. Um, but it was I took a hiatus from engineering and just focused on producing and then later got back into doing both or engineering um, which I still love and mixing. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it was a real, it was ah. really a great album to make. And I got Nicky, one of the last things that Nicky Hopkins played on. Really? On he's that. on that. Yeah. Oh he's man. That. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, Don't you and, just wish that people would go back and find an album like Shakespeare, Alabama? No, I know. I know. I mean, it's the, so the good. It deserves to be discovered. You know what I mean? The the artwork won an award. <laughs> Did it really? <laughs> yeah, it won, yeah, won an award. Yeah, um, oh. and and also Bob Clearmountain remixed a couple of tracks on it as well. So it's got to be good. If good old Bob, Bob's, yeah, that's right. But yeah, no, there was that album that didn't do what you know one would have hoped. Um, yeah, and um, I, it's. I mean, I I really some artists. I really my heart goes out to them, like John. Um, and that band because um, they were really, really, they were ready for it yeah. in all ways. They were ready, you know, they they already had great chops, you know, yeah. they could go and gig forever. That It wasn't a problem. They didn't have any vices, you know, that would destroy them. Um, they were oh. ready for it. And, oh, man. And, and, and I they think deserved the record, it. The record company thing, the record company saw that Blur were getting bigger and bigger oh. and stuck with Blur. I yeah. mean, I love Blur too, but I just, yeah, I, if I that. could make anyone go back and rediscover yeah. something, it would be that Shakespeare Alabama album. It's just yeah. special. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me ask you about working with the Psychedelic Furs. You're on yeah. the Midnight to Midnight album, correct? Yeah. 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 Did you yeah. produce that whole thing? Yeah. I produced the whole thing. That was, um, that was a difficult album to make. Um, I bet. So, yeah. okay. Uh, Steve Thompson has been on yeah. here a couple of times. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about that album and the Anderson Bruford Wakeman and Howe album, which I think he worked on with you as well. Um, yeah. I. So first of all, Heartbreak Beat is up there as one of my all-time favorite songs. And we kind of talked a little bit about production. Uh, it feels like it feels like another song that might have been enhanced or made better by 
work in a studio versus what the band might have come up with. Those yeah. horns and the synths, I'm getting goosebumps again just thinking about it. The yeah. rest of the album yeah. feels like them being harder and more like metally than they are comfortable with being naturally. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. It does make sense, yeah. Um, it, it was, um, I think, song-wise, I remember it being a pretty tough album for uh, for Richard, lyrically, because uh. um, we started that album in Berlin at mm -hmm. Hunter, um, and after the first two or three days, um, Richard and John um, and uh, Richard's brother, whose name you lose me right now. Tim. Yeah? Tim Butler. Tim, that's it, Tim, thank you. Tim, yeah, said, um, Chris, we want you to fire the keyboard player. We don't like him. We don't want him anymore. I was going like, well, shit, you might have told me that before we came out and started making the album. And that was Ed Buller. Ed Buller's a, a, a great friend today. He's a lovely man, but great keyboard player. So I had to think on my feet. So I'd been working with a guy called John Karen in New York. Um, so, and John was like, there was a Kurtzfile keyboard that just came out and John was the master of it. So I got John to come over and, and John did the album with us. Um, but in the songwriting side, I, after, I know, about working on like two or three songs, I said to Richard, I said, Richard, you're singing about angels in every song. It's like, uh, you know, uh, and yeah. this was his work process. He is very, kind of, to me, it was a very strange way of writing a lyric where you were kind of putting the same lyric in all the songs to see which yeah. one sounded best. So um, that was quite different for me. I didn't quite understand. Uh -huh. I'm not sure that I helped guide them in the best possible way of how to make that record because I remember it being an album where it was like there were so many ideas. Yeah. It was more like, well, I'll collect everything and uh -huh. sort it out later. It was uh -huh. a bit like that. Um, and I think that's also why Thompson and Barbiera were asked to come and mix it because mm. and it, it went on for a long time, that album. You know, we started in Berlin, then we went to Switzerland, to Zurich, Powerplay, yeah. um, or Geneva. Then we went to Woodstock. Uh -huh. um, oh, my uh, gosh. Uh, it, it went on for a long time. Um, and um, it was, um, I think, in one respect, it was one of the most experimental albums I've ever worked on. Yeah. Because I would always say, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't shut someone down. Maybe I should have, but it was always like I'd let everybody, you know, try what they wanted to try. And I remember, it, it, I think my first mixes, it was like, it was a, it was shit. There is so much stuff on there. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, um, I was, I was actually quite relieved that someone else was mixing it or that the mixes that they were achieving satisfying people yeah that was yeah thing. so yeah yeah it just feels like kind of a darker album uh, uh yeah. the yeah. uh heartbreak beat again yeah. is kind of the outlier it doesn't yeah did you did you help them sort of create heartbreak beat in the studio yeah it was all created in the studio for sure yeah and paul garisto was a great drummer Paul okay. was a drummer on that whole album yeah was he mars was williams good. around on the saxophone yeah, mark is around as well yeah because yeah, he, he his saxophone yeah. makes a yeah. lot of heartbreak beat, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It really does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a, a strange crossover album. It was them trying to be like disco-y and soft yeah. in one way. Um, and I think, 
you know, there was like maybe the residue from Pretty in Pink, which would be uh, really big yeah. for them. They were yeah. pushing stuff more that way than the other way, you yeah. know, um, because um, Sister, what was it, Sister? Um, oh. Sister, um, yeah, um, Europe, Sister Europe. Sister Europe, yeah. yeah. You know, that kind of sound and fear was wonderful. Yeah. It was great, but they, they kind of moved away from that. Huh. Um, yeah. I remember getting that cassette for Easter. I remember whatever, however old I was, 12 or 13, my folks, right. now we know it's not the Easter Bunny, but my folks, when I would get up on Easter Sunday, I would have, you know, we'd all have new outfits to wear to church and yeah. our Easter baskets would have candy and a little and a something cassette. that we wanted in it. And my Easter basket had the cassette to midnight to midnight. That's, of it. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yep. yeah. 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 I, I was, and then I listened to it and it wasn't quite what I had in mind because it didn't all sound like heartbreak beat, but yeah, I still yeah. love it, but it, it was it's yeah. just a different album to wrap your head around. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me ask you about, did you work with the Joe boxers? Yes, it did. Yeah. Okay. Did you produce just got lucky? Yeah, that was done in Berlin as well. They really? Were great, I really love them. Good. Dick Wayne, the lead yeah. singer, was one of the yeah. first guests we had on here eight oh, and a half really? years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah he yeah, is. Yeah. And I love yeah. everything they did. And Just Got yeah. Lucky still holds up as just one of the best singles of that period. That that was kind of a bit similar to the Escape Club as well for me. Yeah. Oh, you know, really? It was like that pop funky vibe. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. They it's, The way they looked and the sound was a little it was kind of close to like come on eileen and what yes, the next midnight runners yeah, you know would have been yeah. doing at the time and like the overalls yeah. and the yeah you know exactly. that kind of like yeah yes yes that yeah, kind of sure. yeah look yeah. yes that's yeah, what i sort of think of. yeah yeah i love them um okay hmm. i'm gonna throw some names at you if there's stories here let's talk about them piper do you remember working on piper with billy squire uh, i remember working on piper with billy squire yeah with sean delaney Yes. Who the, yeah, who was the, the producer um, who was um, great friends with Bill O'Coin. Yes, they I managed. Know. Bill O'Coin yeah. managed Piper at back then, yeah. as well as yeah. Kiss and Kiss Billy and Idol. Idol. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, Bill and my wife and I, we became really close friends with Bill. Really? We were, Good. Very sad when he passed. Yeah, we, we saw each other up until, you know, just like a year before he passed. He was, oh, wow. He come over to London, but... Um, yeah, Billy was wonderful. I love Piper.
Um, Richie, the drummer, I'm still in touch with him. Um, but again, very sad that they didn't go on to do more. I, I mean, know. Billy just decided he wanted to do his own thing. Yeah. He did. Um, yeah. And, um, but that was a fun, that was a great album. I remember making that in Electric Lady Studios, Electric Ladyland in New York. And, and yeah. Sean, um, Sean was a real, he was a tough producer. He was hard, hard as nails. I bet. <laughs> but um, he loved the sound that I used to get. And we like good cop, bad cop type of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot and we had fun making records. So good. Um, yeah, he, he was a tormented genius. He was one of those. That, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I love Billy Squire and uh, he's one of my favorites. And yeah. I was curious when you're working with on a, on a Piper album, he's not the Billy Squire that we know just yet, no, but are you seeing, no. are you seeing seeds of that? Are you seeing that he is kind of running the show here and would make more sense as a solo artist or yeah, is it a I band environment? No, no, I definitely remember him being like the Kingpin. Okay. Um, yeah. And you know, he was like between him and Sean calling the yeah. shots. Sure. Yeah. Very yeah. much a very strong ego. Sure. Um, well, yeah, and that's yeah. though that if yeah. you've got that personality, you're better off probably as a solo artist anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. did it and he did it well. Okay. I spent a lot of time at Hansa in Berlin. Yeah. It became one of my favorite. It was a good good destination because um it was relatively cheap to recall there. Oh, interesting. You know? Um okay. because of the state of the you know, the pound or the dollar and the and the Deutschmark then. Um the studio was fantastic. They had a beautiful yeah. Neve console, um, the room, the big hall was really special. Um, huh. That was a great, great room, um, and um, and it was a fun place to be. Really, I mean, you know, the the wall was still up, so it was like this yeah. epicenter of everything going on. Yeah, um, art, music, you know, everything. It was really like freedom. It was it was quite a special place, um, and it it really was a place that was revolved around music in every sense um, because you know it, when you weren't working you go to a club and the clubs would play great music i mean amazing yeah. music and then these clubs you you know you were told well we go from this one from like 11 p.m until one then we go to this one till two another one it was like yeah. insane it's great but it was really i've never i didn't know that about the town and that makes more sense why bowie and iggy might have been attracted yeah. to the city to yeah fire up their creativity during that Berlin period. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and is it's it true? Shame. Oh, go yeah. ahead, please. No, it, it's, it's a shame in a way that the stones never got there. Cause I think they yeah. were really enjoyed it there. Uh, really I think you're right. Is it yeah. true that you can see the, the, the Berlin wall right outside the yeah. window? No, and- we did. So it just going back to killing joke and the nighttime album. Yeah. That's when I first discovered Hansa. That was the first oh. album that I did at Hansa. Um, and, um the um in the control room the control room was quite away from the actual hall where you record the instruments um it, it really was it's like, like 200 feet away it's quite a way down the building but in the control room you had these double glazed windows that you'd open out and they would look over it, it oh. was on the first floor it would look over no man's land and you could see the soldiers on the other side in their you know in their um little turrets as it were um, okay. And we'd open the windows and play Killing Joke really yes. loud. <laughs> Just a yes. warm up. And yeah, Ooh, I could see that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The first, so the first 
the first time I went to answer was with Killing Joke, as I said. And we got there in preparation. I I, I made sure because all the gear was coming over from the UK. It, you know, a bit complicated getting the gear through the through in, in into Berlin. So I made sure that the band and I and all the gear got there like two days or three days before we were about to start. So mm-hmm. that was all fine. Um, the band was staying in. They they had like apartments above the studio that you could rent. So the band stayed okay. there. I was put in a hotel um, quite away from the studio. Um, and um, the second night um, we were there, um, I got a phone call at four in the morning from the police saying... The band, the police. No, no, no. From oh, the, the police, the police, police. The German police. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> saying, Mr. Kimsley, we understand you are responsible for this group killing joke. Um, <laughs> you have to come to the studio because they destroyed the studio oh no and i said what do you mean they destroyed this so i went to the studio and what had happened was is that um the owner's son who was like an assistant engineer he was showing off to the band you know he was so, so he took them out to a club brought them back to the studio gave them all the brandy and anything else they wanted um, and and geordie was notorious for doing wild and crazy things so yes geordie at one point, they're all dancing around in the control room. Julie got a fire extinguisher and sprayed the whole console in it. And this was that white kind of powdery uh-huh, stuff. Uh-huh. So the kid freaked out and called the studio manager. They called the police. So oh. when I got there, the band were all out in the corridor and the police had them at gunpoint. Oh, really? Yeah. It was pretty serious. And, and, um, they said to me, they said, well, you know, we, you know, this is impossible. You cannot yeah. work here. You're on the next flight out tomorrow. So the next morning I had to go groveling around begging and saying, <laughs> this, I'm really sorry. And this is the, well, I've worked with them once or twice at Olympic doing eighties, but I didn't know uh-huh. them that well. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I had to like really beg. I said, look, I promise you they won't do anything. They'll be as good uh-huh. as gold. So I managed to talk my way through it. And um, we managed to stay there to make the album. Yeah. But the ironic thing was that because that was the first record I made there, then I kept going back there for like a couple of years, I'd say. Every time I went back, there'd be a new crackle in the console because the oh. dust from the fire extinguisher was actually eating away at the console. Oh, so no. Oh, I no. never forgave them for that. But, um, yeah, that was well, that was interesting, having to uh, <laughs> save the band from being deported. With the, oh, that point. sounds like just what you imagine Killing Joke doing, to be honest. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Simon Kirk from Bad Company was on here earlier this year, and uh, oh, he's right. such a nice guy. So great. Yeah. Wonderful. And we talked about their albums. You worked on a couple of them, but the one I wanted to ask you about specifically, I think, was Burning Sky.
Yes, because, that's right. yeah. and this is not a knock on you, that album sounds like a bunch of guys who are tired and out of ideas. And right. when I mentioned that mm-hmm. to him, he said that is absolutely where we were at that yeah. time. And so yeah. I wonder what creating that album was like for you. I remember more about what we try to do to elevate the band and the music. Uh, that makes sense. So what do you do yeah. in a situation like that? When you have a band that's clearly on empty, you know, as far as fuel, how do you well, get something out of them? Well, it was pretty difficult in that respect because um, it was one of the, what happens in that situation, which always kinds of happens in that situation, when when the, when the band, they've kind of wiped out their titles, they start arguing and fighting with each other. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's one or two of them who try and placate it and keep it down. So Mick Ralphs and I, we were actually arranged to have like, oh, we'd come up with these, crazy party ideas, you know, to kind of, you know, um, you know, we, we'd go into the local village and dress up. Uh-huh. I mean, just crazy stuff to try and get a bit of atmosphere going on. So there's tense atmosphere. Um, but, um, it, yeah, it does sound tired and sluggish. I, I can almost feel the humidity of, of when we were, because it, it was in this studio just outside Paris called Aeroville and it was summer and it was hot. And there's oh, no air conditioning. Bet. It was quite oppressive. It was nice because there was a pool, but you weren't in uh-huh. the pool. You were trying to make it record. So, um, yeah, that that was a uh, that yeah that was a difficult album as well. It was a bit of a sad album, but yeah, um, it, it actually, but it, it did strike a good friendship with Paul. I mean, that's good. Paul and I still speak. I haven't spoken to Simon for ages, um, but I love Simon's drumming. I yes, mean, yes, great. And Boz as well. Boz was wonderful. All nice guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's not much. I don't think there's well, there's not much any producer or engineer can do when you know when you you get a group of musicians who are just yeah. completely fucked. Um, yeah, you um, can tell. You can tell. And I wondered what you're. And bless him, Simon was totally open and honest yeah. about that exact same thing. So it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder how do you spark a band who clearly needs something in order to complete yeah. an album when yeah. the juices aren't flowing and it sounds like creative parties is one of yeah, the yeah, ideas yeah. that you do. We did, yeah, yeah. We did a disco night. I remember. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. It, funny thing was after the album was finished, we actually got together and did a, um, <laughs> a party in London and it was, um, we all dressed up as, um, like air force pilots. Really? <laughs> yeah. We, we, when we were out there, we got to do this whole thing of, of like, you know, um, the Brits in the Air Force and the war, all uh-huh. being dressed up as airport. It was quite surreal, quite funny. Uh, okay. And we continued that when we got back to London. <laughs> Whatever works, I guess, in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I just got a couple left. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much you did on this one either. Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears did a solo yeah. album called Soul on Board. Yes, I love Kurt. He was wonderful. I love yeah. Kurt. I love that album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a song on there called... Um, Dear God, I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, Calling Out. That's one of my favorite songs ever.
what did you do on Soul on Board? Um, I remember we we did the album in um, the Village Recorder in LA. Okay. Um, I remember um, I remember Billy Livesey, the keyboard player. Um, I met Kurt through a friend of mine called Steve Smith who bought Tower Records to London. But Steve was also a producer, actually. He did um, Bob Marley live at the Lyceum. We okay. worked on the... Um, um, we produced a, a live album for the Nebworth concert, which oh, was a sure. huge, massive yep. thing with like, Tears for Fears, um, um, Eric Clapton, Elton John, Pink Floyd. It was a massive live album. Um, great, really good. Steve and I produced that together. And I think that's where I really got to know Kurt. And we just became good friends. And... Um, and it was really nice that he asked me to, you know, help him make that album. Yeah. Um, and Martin uh, Page is on there. Yeah, that's it. Mark Page. It was Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Martin, Mark he, was, he's yeah. been on here. He and I are friendly actually. And he's, um, yeah. he wrote, we built this city and these dreams that's and right. King of Wishful yes. Thinking and all that kind of yes. thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Lovely writing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he was involved with the album or we were working together. Yeah. I just remember it being, um, a, a, a great record, fun record to make. Yeah. For sure. yeah. 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 That album was, uh, it came out at a time when a lot of bands seemed to be sort of, and I mean, I mean this in a good way. I'm not, it, it, they sort of are all kind of wanting to set, have that bigger sound kind of like Phil Collins yeah. or Peter Gabriel yeah, yeah, or a yeah. little bit of the seeds of love album that yeah. they had just done that bigger, almost, I don't know. It, I can't describe the sound other than it. They, they were uh, simple minds that slightly bigger yeah. music sound more yeah. uh there's more orchestrated in yeah bombastic yeah, yeah. in a way you know bigger yeah. it's just yeah. there's more going on and it, it feels that way on that album too yeah yeah i don't yeah. think i've heard that for a long time um i mean talking of listening to albums that i've made i i listened to jimmy cliff a lot special album did i yes I mean, okay he's on my list too yeah, that just sounds timeless to me, that album. Yeah. And Peter Tosh as well, Mama yes. Africa. That, okay, so let's talk about reggae. Uh, you've yeah. done some Peter Tosh and some Jimmy Cliff albums, both yeah. legends. Yeah. Reggae feels like its own thing. You know, you work, there's working with the Stones and Bad Company and Zeppelin, but then there's reggae over here, which feels like a completely different animal. Do you approach working on a reggae album or with a reggae artist differently than you would all these other no. rock white rock stars no i don't and also when i was a kid when i was like a teenager i used to love scar records yes me too i would Still. go to scar club so i was very familiar with the sound and it was actually it was such a dream for me to when i first got to jamaica when i first worked with jimmy to understand how they got the sound that they did and the way they get the drum sound it's very simple. They just don't have any microphones. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. So you you know, it, in a normal situation in recording the drum kit, you'd have a microphone over the cymbals. You'd have a microphone over every drum. You know, uh, um, and you'd have microphones in the room. Well, they only have microphones on the tom toms, the bass drum, and the snare. So it's a very dark sound. All the yeah. cymbals are actually just bleeding through those microphones, and. When I discovered that, it was like a little light went off, and I loved that completely. Yeah, yeah. respected it and loved it. And 
Um, I just love the flow. I mean, I love reggae music. I, Me too. I count, I count on that beat. I don't, uh-huh. you know, I move to that beat. So, um, and, um, I'm still working with reggae today, actually. A, a friend of mine called Tim Hain, who, who has this thing called Blege, which is blues and reggae put together. Ooh, interesting. Which don't know it. Nice. So, okay. So it, it was quite a journey going down. I spent a year in Jamaica, um, um, working with Jimmy and uh, a, a white Jamaican band called Native as well. Um, huh. um, um, Wayne, um, what's Wayne? Wayne and his brother, Wayne Jobson. Okay. Wayne Jobson. And Wayne actually has a radio show in LA or Houston, a big, huh. you know, big LA reggae station. Um, and uh, yeah, I just had a ball down there. And Jimmy was one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. And work with. It seems really. that way. It seems that and way. I, and I did the thing that I always kind of do is I, I always bring someone into the party. So I took uh-huh. Byron Allred, who was the keyboard player with Steve Miller. Oh. So I've been working with him on a project. I took him down to Jamaica because he had a Moog synth. Oh. Um, he had you know, some sounds that nobody else had down there. So uh-huh. I took him down there um, as part of it, which is wow. Yeah. Do you have, I want to sprinkle in a song in here of that you love from what, if you were to say, what was like one of the finest moments or the, you know, an album with Peter or Jimmy that you just think is magical. Tell us a song we should play right here. That has a good story. Oh, wow. Well, there's too many. Um, I mean, Mama Africa is a great song. Um, that okay. was really good. The version of Johnny be good that we did. Yeah. I mean, that was a bit of a story because it was Donald Kinsey, the guitar player, who also came in with me from New York. Well, he's from Chicago, but we were the two outside people coming into Peter's world. And um, Donald and I said, oh, we should get Peter to do a, a version of Johnny Be Good. And Peter, we played in the song, Chuck Berry, and he said, me no sing no white man song. <laughs> so the, the next day I bought a picture of Chuck Berry and said, this is the man that wrote Johnny Be Good. Ah, him brother, he sings the song. So he did it. It's a great version too. That's um, great. Um, what is there? I'm imagining you can bear. You're in the control room, and they're in the studio, and you have to like part through the 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 marijuana cloud, Steve, and see them. They're in yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Well, also the studio. The studio, so we did Peter Tosh album. Um, yeah, we, we did that in um, in Dynamic Sound, which is in a, 
a factory estate. It's not okay. in a town or a village. It's in a concrete jungle. And, oh. and the power would often go out for two hours a day in in downtown um, in Kingston. So you'd be in the middle of a take and all of a sudden, boop, all the power goes off and you just have to sit in the car park in the you know, 80 degree weather smoking oh, the joint. Yeah. Um, wait for it to come back on again. So yeah. it, you soon chilled out to that. But that was yeah. fun. But the first time I went, so the very first day I did get to go in the studio was in Kingston with Jimmy Cliff. And, and that was at um, Channel One Studios, which is a real, that was in downtown Trenchtown. That was oh. in Trenchtown. And no white man's allowed in Trenchtown. So they had to drive me there and they covered me in a blanket. <laughs> Uh, and I got out the car, still covered into a blanket, and just went into the studio. And no didn't way. leave. Yeah, yeah, it was quite, yeah. But I loved it. Absolutely. Wow, such good friends with all of them. I mean, just wonderful. That is great. Really great musicians. Oh, that stuff is so good. Wonderful fun. Okay, we should talk about Frampton Comes Alive. I was kind of saving that one to the end. How okay. involved are you on this? And let me. I, we try to sensitively cover the business side of things over here. Did you get a point at least nah, on Frampton no, Comes Alive? Nothing. I got screwed. I got screwed on it. Really? No. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I've done every album, well, except for Frampton's Camel. Peter and I are great friends. We're still very, yeah. Yeah, we're great friends today. One of my best, deep, dearest friends. But the whole journey of Peter's career with D. Anthony's manager, who you know, who screwed him up, fucked him up, stole from him, uh, yeah. and then threatened me. I, um, D actually threatened me and said, if I ever come asking for points or money, I'd end up at the bottom of the Hudson. Um, oh, no. And I was maybe like 23 years old at that time. So, <laughs> so no, I didn't get anything. I, I got a Nakamichi cassette tape recorder for May and M. That's it? For selling it. 25 million copies? Yeah, yeah. I was promised points, but I didn't get them. I was because yeah, of was, D. Anthony. Yeah, yeah. Oh just, yeah. no. Yeah. So, um, so, but in making the album, it was wonderful. I mean, I I recorded, I think maybe two or three songs, but it had been recorded by Eddie Kramer. Recorded some and another engineer, but I mixed it with Peter at Electric Lady, and it was just amazing to mix because you just threw up the faders and as soon as you heard the audience, it was like, oh yeah. my God. And the audience inspired the play. The audience were a huge part of that album. Yes, yes. That's why you feel that when you listen to that record, you feel them in it. Um, and there was no overdubs. It was all as it was. We didn't oh my enhance gosh. the crowd. We didn't do anything. We just mixed it. And and it was, um, it was kind of make or break for Peter because yeah. if, if that album didn't do something, I know that the three albums before hadn't done that particularly well. Yeah. And it was, you know, make it or break it time. So um, D, so another instance with D, D said, okay, he said, we're just doing a single album. You know, that's all we want to do, a single album. So we mixed the single album, as it were. And uh -huh. then Jerry Moss came down to listen to it. Wonderful man. Sat uh -huh. down and listened to it. And we finished it. And he said, where's the rest? And we went, we said, it's got to be a double album. You've got to yeah. have it So yeah. we went back in and, and mixed the, uh, the rest of it. Oh, and, wow. And, and that was it. And then the rest was history. And then um, and then I I should have left after that because I knew I was getting screwed. And yeah. sure enough, I got screwed again on the next one. But I was just Ugh. so 
Because he's a good friend with Peter, I couldn't just yeah. leave him type of thing. Yeah. So, uh, but D. Anthony, meanwhile, was literally killing Peter. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, just so frustrating. Him. You hear yeah, these stories; they're so bad. Yeah. I mean, it had to have kind of blown your mind a little bit to see, like you were saying, Peter was a a decent artist, but he wasn't humongous. And no. then, and he's got these, you know, there's Spooky Tooth, and there's uh, the the other solo albums that he does that are all respectable. Nothing yeah. would have let you know that this no. live album no, out of absolutely. nowhere from this no. guy would have. No. And they're what, still the same songs. They're the same yeah. songs. What you Can you think about what happened? What was the flashpoint that made that album as big and special as it was? Uh, I think the point, the, the, the fact that he did so much touring really mm. set him up in a really good place for that. Yeah. And I think it just had an energy and a freshness yeah. that hadn't been heard before. I mean, it, it's really, it's really quite strange that when you've worked on the previous albums where all those songs come from pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. You, you go, well, it's the same song, but there's just some, it's the same voice, the same thing, but yeah. okay, maybe everything's up a few B, few more BPM, everything's sure. a bit faster, um, but it's kind of essentially the same stuff. And, uh, but the, the end is what happens when you're in front of a crowd of people, you know, you've got 10,000 people, wherever many people are there and, and, and you, you get that, you know, that thing happening between the crowd and the artist just elevates uh -huh. everybody. It's yeah. amazing. It's the same when I when I did um, I did a, a live album, the Stones live album called Flashpoint. Yeah, um, and I had to trawl through. Oh gosh, I had to trawl through maybe like thirty shows and pick oh. out the best performances. Oh my gosh, of songs, and I could pretty much tell by the first song how the audience, the tone of the audience, mm. I go, oh, this is going to be a good show. You just uh -huh. knew it. I mean, they were uh -huh. all pretty nuts. You know, yeah, every audience was nuts, but sure. some were even more kind of in tune than others, as it were. It was that is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Chris, so uh, I'm going yeah. to have to go, mate. Yep, that's fine. Well, I, that was my last thing. Anyway, last question uh, for you. Tell us, we first of all, that Jerry Williams album is on Spotify. Yeah, if anyone yeah. wants to listen to it, I'm going to check it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there one, if we were going to, we always play a closeout song. Right. What, what should be our closeout song? You pick it for us. Something that you know, something that people don't know. What's okay, a favorite I'm going to pick yours? something that people don't know. Okay, Terry please. Reed. Terry Reed. Terry Reed. Yeah. Wait, the, yeah, an I've heard of him. An album, an album I did called Rogue Wave. Rogue, Rogue Wave. Wave. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that track, Rogue Wave. Okay. Yeah. We'll close it out with Rogue that. Wave. Yeah. That is great. Yeah. yeah. Chris, you are it's a another legend. one of those that should have been, but wasn't. Yes. You check Man, it out. We could do all do. We could do a whole hour some other time about all the things you did that no, should have been can, huge no. and wouldn't. You, and no, didn't, you know let's what I mean? come back and do some more. Let's definitely. I would love it. Yeah, Chris, you're a legend. Yeah. Thank you for giving me your time. It is. Uh, it means a you. lot. To thank me. you for researching and bringing up some stuff that is fun to remember. As well. Good. I'm so glad. I mean, I've lived with yeah. so much of this music my whole life. It means a lot yeah. to me. All right, there you have it, Chris Kimsey. Pretty great, right? I love. I'm just so grateful that producers, that anyone talks to us, but especially legendary producers like him. By the way, we've got two or three more uh, that are being worked out right now that you guys are going to love. As he suggested, I want to close it out with Terry Reed's Rogue Waves because that's what uh, Chris mentioned. By the way, if you go back, I went back and listened to the Terry Reed album and the Jerry Williams album. There's so, it's great. We got to, uh, as I, I mean, I was kind of serious. Chris and I might have to do another hour sometime 
on all the stuff he's done that no one really knows about. Ed Stasium and I kind of did something similar, or talked about it anyway. There's just so much great stuff that has passed through Chris Kimsey's hands. We're so grateful that he talked to us. Anyway, next week's guest is a big one. We're kicking off the year with like four Brits in a row, and there's a lot of big names. Next week is one of the greatest living drummers. Uh, maybe the greatest British living drummers. Lots of Brits the next few weeks. Uh, a lot of great music, legendary music, a new album. Um, that's who's coming up. You guys are going to love it. It's a big one. And he talked to me for a long time, which I don't know if he's ever done that before. Anyway, huge thanks to Yan. We're glad he's back. We're glad he's feeling better. We hope there's no more disruptions. If there are, we'll try and communicate those better in the future. Uh, but anyway, thanks, man, for being my right-hand man. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter or X or whatever, at thehustlepod. We still have a two, let's see, there's two deep dives and a book club, and Yan and I are going to be recording a recap soon. So there's tons of extra bonus material in the can. Uh, it's just a matter of whether Yan can get it out. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. What?